research that resonates. Schweitzer has not been wrong on any of his years and years of reporting on the Bidens. Investigations that matter. If your last name wasn't Biden, do you think you would have been asked to be on the board of Burisma? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. But that's, you know, I, I don't think that there's a lot of things that would have happened in my life that, uh, that if my last name wasn't Biden. The only entities, the only people that would report on this, and Peter Schweitzer, who deserves a Medal of Freedom, in my view, this is The Drill Down with Peter Schweitzer. Hi, this is Peter Schweitzer, and welcome to The Drill Down, where we relentlessly expose cronyism, corruption, and the abuse of power in Washington, D.C. I'm joined, as always, by co-host Eric Eggers, who is an author in his own right and vice president of the Government Accountability Institute. So I'm a bit older, but you have school-aged children. And Eric, is it ever a concern to you that some teachers or administrators in your school or activists might be pushing a social agenda on them? Uh, the only social agenda I worry about is them teaching them the wrong way to add and subtract. You know, I'm not about this, uh, <laughs> like estimate, guess and check, that kind of stuff. No, we did a rote memorization. I'm old school about the math. Uh, and I'm relatively old school about other things as well. But no, it, it, luckily with my children, it's not been an issue. But I know for many, many parents, it has been. And I think that's one of the reasons why our guest today's book and research has, I think, literally started a fire across the country. Yeah, that's right. I mean, joining us today is Luke Rosiak. He's got a fantastic new book out called Race to the Bottom. Uh, there's a lot of people that write about education, a lot of people who do commentary analysis. Uh, this is actually an investigation, and I think probably the largest ever undertaken on this particular subject of what's actually happening in schools. Uh, Luke, of course, is famous uh, for breaking the Loudoun County school story that rocked the state of Virginia and the country. It was uh, this incredible case where the county was covering up sexual crimes that were occurring uh, to students. Uh, and the administrators were trying to cover it up and not make parents aware of what was happening to their children. Here's an audio tape of one of those parents talking about the case. We were under the impression from the prosecutor that this sexual predator was being held on in-house arrest with an ankle monitor and would not return to school until these court sessions were done. You know, you're innocent until you're proven guilty. I understand that. But we do have to protect everyone at the same time. <sighs> I was told by everyone, our, my attorneys, the prosecuting attorney, friends of the family, people I don't even know, that if I wanted justice for my daughter, that I needed to keep my mouth quiet and not speak out because in order to get justice for my daughter, which is the most important thing to me, of course, was to not come out and let justice prevail. So you got to understand, you know, this happened the last week of May and then, you know, school ended, you know, and the school board and the school system just went on summer break and abandoned us. My wife and I had to spend the entire summer you know, rebuilding our daughter, you know, unfortunately there was a couple, you know, you know, rough nights. It, it was, it was, it was hell. But the good news is my daughter's doing very well. You know, all summer long, you know, we're waiting for justice and I'm keeping quiet. And then last Friday night, the phone rang. I actually believe it was a text from a concerned parent to my wife and said, I need to know 
what the boy's name is. And we said, we will never discuss that. Why? And then they proceed to tell my wife that there was another assault at Broad Run High School. And the rumor is that it's the same boy. And how did we learn about this case? Who broke open that story? It was actually Luke Rosiak, who's going to be joining us on the program today. Luke, thanks for joining us. But this is not really just a story about Loudoun County, is it? This is a national problem. Yeah, that's right, Peter. And thank you for having me, by the way. Um, You know, Virginia was really kind of up in arms with this. But as I kept digging with your assistance on this two-year-long investigative project, um, what I found is that it's so much deeper and so much broader than, than really anyone would have ever suspected. It's in red states. It's in rural areas, it's in suburbs, it's in cities. Um, And, you know, there are 13,000 school districts. I basically track the way that these ideas spread um, from the places that have really the worst outcomes, which are essentially Seattle and Minneapolis, into places like Boise, Idaho. And unfortunately, the victims of all this are the academic achievement of kids and, you know, probably the happiness of kids too. I think that's really the key takeaway, right? Because I think people saw, I mean, we saw what happened in San Francisco recently where you had school board members kicked out uh, or you recalled because parents were upset that they spent more time debating during the pandemic about renaming schools than they did reopening schools. I mean, what does that issue just as a, as a recent thing in the headlines speak to the larger trend that your book uncovers? Uh, it's really style over substance. They're always focused on the superficial and optics. And so what I found is that uh, you can really look at CRT as um, a, a way to take the focus off of the real point of schools, which is academic achievement. So going back even 20 years, what you see is horrible out- academic outcomes. And instead of trying to do better, they move numbers around. And so I trace this back to 2001 when we had no child left behind a law that had sort of a common sense provision that you would have expected around 2001 when we're entering the internet age, which is we should just publish statistics about how schools are doing. What are the test scores? What are the graduation rates? That's a totally common sense policy and it made sense. But what I think lawmakers didn't expect is that when these statistics looked bad, um, a, a, a positive person might find ways to help the kids learn more so that the statistics would improve. Instead, they set out on this race to the bottom where they started lowering standards. So if the graduation rate looks embarrassingly low, just make it easier to graduate and then pat yourself on the back for um, making the, taking the graduate rate up. And so I traced this back over 20 years, and I think coming back to the renaming schools when schools literally aren't even open, what you see is that same thing. It's, it's all optics. It's virtue signaling. It's superficial stuff. And it's all just at the detriment of what are schools really for, which is teaching kids the fundamentals in math, science, and writing. And ironically, we talk about the critical race theory, which you know the most charitable frame of it would be to respect the unique cultural background obstacles people had to co- overcome. But those San Francisco elections were actually shaped in large part by uh, Chinese and Asian parents in the San Francisco area who value absolutely like education and achievement over any of the virtue signaling or more emotional things. And that was, I mean, they had more Asians vote in that election than they had historically. And it's, it's wild to think, Luke, you just talking about it being 20 years, because in reading the book and looking at the research, I'm reminded of, um, you know, No Child Left Behind was George W. Bush's education thing. But Jeb Bush, when he was governor of Florida, 
radically reshaped education in the state of Florida. It was very much the same mindset. They said, we're going to test everybody. So we started giving everybody in third grade a reading test and say, if you cannot read at this grade level, you cannot go past it. And it was for some level like, okay, good. We're going to ensure a year's worth of education means a year's worth of learning. Uh, teachers unions pushed back against it. Democrat parents pushed back against it. And what's funny is that now, I mean, the most startling statistics in your book, I think, are the math proficiency gaps in the progressive cities versus the conservative cities, because I think this sort of just underscores that issue. Yeah. And there was a study done by a former Democrat um, school board member of Minneapolis who runs a left-leaning think tank now called Brightbeam. And this, the study is called Our Secret Shame. And the secret shame is that the best way to know how bad the racial gaps are going to be in a school system is how progressive is the city. The more progressive it is, the worse the racial gaps are going to be. And this is after doing uh, controlling, using statistical measures to control for other things like um, income and overall racial distribution. So they take all those factors out of it. And even then, um, what we find is that we know that progressive education policies, which are usually the policies obsessed with race, that they don't work at helping minorities learn better. Um, there was also another, another study that came out just recently that found that when a, when a school district hires one of these equity czars, you know, director of equity or whatever, uh, racial, racial gaps get worse after that. And so, you know, some of the things I do in this book is go back and look at like, what is Minneapolis and Seattle doing 10 years ago? Because it's like entering this creepy time machine. What they were doing 10 years ago is what, you know, uh, Wichita, Kansas is doing now. Um, all of this stuff is just a delayed, um, <laughs> we're just living in a delayed timeline of what they were doing 10 years ago. It all comes from there. But the situation has been horrible in, in uh, Seattle and, and Minneapolis. Minneapolis is, of course, where the George Floyd riots were. Those are the young people of that town, they don't, uh, of that city. They don't feel um, that anything has improved race-wise through 20 years of equity initiatives. Instead, they feel oppressed and they're angry. Um, and so what we're seeing is the places that work and Virginia Beach is a conservative city that actually has no achievement gap. The, the minorities do, I think, even better than whites in some cases. Um, they were doing it right. But instead, we have the cities that are doing it right now copying these progressive ones that get it wrong. Yeah, I mean, the, the numbers are stunning. Uh, we're talking to Luke Rosiak, and uh, this comes from his book, Race to the Bottom. The black-white math proficiency gap in Washington, D.C. is 62, San Francisco, 58, Oakland, 51, and Minneapolis, 53, Portland, 49, Seattle, 47. And then you list conservative cities like Arlington, Texas, Jacksonville, Colorado Springs, and others, much smaller, uh, 12 or 19. So, the statistics back you up, and and that is powerful. I, I'll tell you the most powerful thing in the book that that, that spoke to me, um, and the data is devastating. I've never seen it put together in a volume like this before. But what's devastating to me are just some of the horrific stories of the individual tolls that this sort of social experimentation on young kids is taking about you know suicide attempts, uh, destructive uh, psychological effects of what kids start. Uh, thinking about themselves as a result of things they're being told by administrators. Talk a little bit about the human cost and toll to individual children that are being subject to what, to me, is, is social experimentation. Yeah, and I think you're exactly right. I mean, it's this is bigger than Democrat versus Republican. At the end of the day, as parents, every parent wants their child to be happy. And when you take a kid that doesn't perceive that they're oppressed and then tell them that they're oppressed, uh, that doesn't make them happy. And by the way, if, if, they, if you're not 
perceiving that you're oppressed. Are, are you really even oppressed? I mean, it, it doesn't really make any sense. Why do you need to be told that? Um, and I think of people like Greta Thunberg, which is not someone we want to be emulating. This is a very unhappy girl, um, very in deep emotional pain. And activists really cultivated that pain because they found it useful for pushing their agenda about climate. And the NEA Teachers Union actually gave her a big award. Um, but there's another thing here, which is the closing down the schools is really the same thing. What we see is that um, these special interest groups are willing to harm children for their own agenda. And closed schools inflicted the same kind of emotional harm that CRT does. I spoke to one mom who adopted a kid out of foster care. And when schools closed, that five-year-old child became suicidal. And the reason was pretty clear. He had been abandoned by every person he thought he'd loved him, who thought uh, loved him throughout his life. And here the teachers were doing that again. They were letting him down. They were abandoning him. And they were really brainwashing these kids to say that, look, if you come to school, if you people will die, you're basically these disease vectors. That's what you are. You're not children. You're disease vectors. Mm-hmm. You better stay away from me or you're going to be responsible for my grandma dying. The teachers would tell them this kind of thing on like Zoom calls. And this kid, this five-year-old suicidal adopted kid, his brother was going to private school every day, Catholic school, no, no problems with in-person learning. No one got sick. And because he was told this by his teachers, he started becoming concerned that his, his Mm. brother was going to die. Mm. I think so. Oh my gosh. We could talk about this for like hours, but we can't, but, uh, there was a study done actually that I don't think got very much attention at all, but to Luke's point about like just what the shutdowns did in terms of like the harm. I mean, you're talking about the emotional harm of the impact that that's had on that one five-year-old foster kid, but they did a study even when uh, schools were closed in March of 2020, right? So just for the two months that they were closed because of the role that teachers play as mandatory reporters for child abuse. And then you had these kids not be in school and therefore not exposed or, you know, not exposed in person. They did an estimate that it was like 250,000 cases of child abuse nationwide didn't get reported just in those two months alone. So think about that. And then you extrapolate that over the next year and a half, two years in the other areas where schools weren't open, unlike in Florida. And so so it's not just emotional harm. I think that's incredibly real. But I think it was also a profound physical harm to what having schools closed did, which is ironic since they closed schools. Why? To try to protect us physically. Um, and I think, Luke, the, the larger point, too, is in terms of like, what roles do the unions play and how much do the unions feature in your book? Uh, we've talked on this podcast, we've done research partly based on yours about teachers unions and how Randy Weingarten and other union leadership was instrumental in helping the federal government write and shape the guidelines. But you kind of what role do you feel like the unions play in these trends that are happening in America's schools? I mean, the unions are so crucial to all of it. The unions worked with the Democratic Socialists of America to shut down schools. Um, they ran a campaign called Demand Safe Schools. And people thought they were referring to coronavirus. They were not. They were saying we need to get police out of schools because police are dangerous. So we demand safe schools with no, no cops in them. Um, so they were using the coronavirus in a very misleading way. They said never let a crisis go to waste. And, um, you know, basically the teachers unions have these cells, if you want to look at that way, cells throughout America. Um, and the democratic socialists want that infrastructure. And so they're able to team up and it becomes a very powerful force. Um, uh, there's a group called the, uh, center for popular democracy. That was kind of the, uh, behind this arrangement, this coalition, and they're sort of a successor group to acorn. And so all of these groups, acorn had this really 
kind of clever affiliate model where it's national, but then it's also got local chapters everywhere. That's essentially the role that the teachers unions push uh, or, or fill. Um, it's a way to go down to every area of the country. Um, but of course, the teachers unions have always opposed testing and uh, because it shows whether they're doing their jobs well or not. And one of the things I was most struck by was this chart that showed the correlation between grades. In other words, did you pass your te- did you pass your class? Did you get an A? Did you get an F? And then test scores. And there's no correlation. The grades are just made up. You know, people call it grade inflation or whatever. But I think that's a little misleading. When people hear grade inflation, they think it's because they're like pampering the snowflake children. That's not what it is. Grade inflation is to protect teachers. Yeah. Because yeah. once you realize that they these these schools are receiving $17,000 per child per year on average in America and then you're getting a 36% literacy rate that is completely intolerable no you know no private sector uh, uh company would ever survive with that that kind of rate of return and so they try to conceal it and they send these kids home with A's and frankly, parents haven't really caught on to this scam because most parents are not inclined to push back when your kid comes home with an A. And so there was this sort of wishful thinking element to it where all the parents told ourselves, our schools are actually great. Little Johnny's getting an A. Uh, little Johnny may have actually been getting horrifically let down over a period of very long time. And so it's the, the teachers unions are basically um, uh, putting this, these false, they're, they're lying. They're misleading us in the same way that Loudoun County covered up that rape. The teachers unions have been covering up poor performance for many years by shifting the focus away from test scores, which are the only things we can trust to subjective measures. It's not just grade inflation. It sounds like it's grade fabrication, right? I mean, that's to your point. It's not really (laughs) constructed that way. Uh, here's to me, just my big picture takeaway. And I I know you've got to go, but like right or wrong, basically everything that these progressive educational initiatives set out to do, they do the opposite, right? Like the CRT and racial sensitivity stuff is meant to more closely align minority students with their white counterparts. And it's only exacerbated the divide and learning gain. It's further setting them back. We have instituted these COVID protocols to try to protect the health and emotional, the fit, physical and emotional safety of our children. It's done the opposite. And to me, the, the worst and most terrifying part is that this will now be the condition moving forward because I think that what happened to teachers in the COVID era has so wrecked them mentally and emotionally that now teachers still see children as active threats. And that's the environment our kids are going to be learning in for the foreseeable future. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it really was disgusting. I, I went to a school in Fairfax in my neighborhood and I saw the teacher there and she looked like Darth Vader because she had this plastic <laughs> shield on, but then beneath the plastic shield, she had this huge mask and you just saw basically her little eyes peeking out and that was it. And she was teaching five-year-olds. I mean, she was clearly had contempt for these children. And, you know, as an adult, I go, I go about my business every day. I go to stores, I go wherever. I've literally never seen anyone dressed like that. And, and so, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> like, it is so emotionally devastating. But I think what this book does is by, by zooming out, and I think it's a very well-timed book because clearly this is like the topic of our era. Um, but what people need to understand about both CRT and the coronavirus closures is that both of them were excuses to do exactly what the teachers had always wanted to do. They were, they were using these, um, they were, they were using them as the latest techniques to do what they've been trying to do and through various tricks for 20 years, which is 
conceal the test scores so that people don't realize these things like 11% are proficient in history, 24% proficient in math, 36% literacy. Um, so a couple of those strategies, I mean, sometimes they just falsify the grades straight up, especially in the inner cities. They'll enroll kids in like fake classes that don't even exist. Um, but, you know, in, they also have all these they call them pedagogies. It's like the crazy little, the things they cook up at like Columbia University. And so they want the parents to be like, oh, well, you have a doctorate in education. That sounds really smart. You're talking about like SBA <laughs> and CSRE and all these acronyms. And right. I could never understand that. I'm not smart enough. So I defer to you, Mr. Superintendent. And so, you know, I had the luxury of taking the time to, to read all these papers and understand these acronyms. And I want to tell parents, Trust me, you are smarter than these people. Um, they're using these acronyms to try to confuse you and make you feel subservient. But they are like fifth grade ideas that are dressing themselves up in this fancy terminology just because they are so empty in terms of substance. Um, and so the short way to describe all these various um, acronyms that you're going to hear about if you start paying attention to schools is it's just a way to, to, to make things subjective so that you can't prove, you can't just see so clearly that kids are not learning in schools. And so briefly, an example that you'll hear is SBA, standards-based assessments. And what that means is doing away with letter grades, A, B, C, D, E, you know, F. And they want to basically grade you on a four-point scale instead. So why are they doing this? Just think about it mathematically. Uh, the top number grade letter, whatever rating you can get is a one, that would correspond to like a 75% and up. So 75% is a C. So this whole thing is a number scam so that they can take the, take a C, C grade and, and pretend it's an A. Mm -hmm. um, they, they don't want granularity in assessment because it conceals their failures. And so when I set out to, to write a book that kind of focused on like the CRT and all that, I found myself going almost embarking on this mathematical mystery where a lot of it, I started to think of it as like Enron. Remember the energy company that was manipulating numbers and they didn't really have a product, but they were making money by just like falsifying the stats. That's what the schools are. And understanding CRT and, and the reaction to coronavirus, which not just was closed schools, but which meant we, we can't do tests anymore because of coronavirus. Um, you have to understand it in that context. It's all designed to hide the stats which are very clear that objectively speaking, the schools are getting a very, very bad uh, rate of return for the money and, and they are well-funded. So I tell you, Eric, one of the things that's really striking to me about Luke's book is that it, it's got really important data and information that is really stunning. You're not going to find anywhere else. We also have got these just really heart-wrenching stories of individual kids suffering because of the decisions that these so-called education experts are making. What, what were your big takeaways as somebody who's got kids that are school age right now? Yeah. So what's crazy to me is that nothing's new in the educational landscape. Uh, you know, we mentioned it briefly, but my first like adult job was actually working for the Department of Education when Jeb Bush was governor. That's horrifying. At, what, what, me, <laughs> what, what's horrifying? You in charge of our state's youth. Yeah, no, I definitely wasn't. <laughs> I uh, worked right next to the copy machine and very much channeled my inner Rob Schneider from the SNL making copies right now. I should not have been employed, though, to your point. Um, but but it, what was really fascinating is because of that, I learned about and made friends with the people who were in charge of shaping education policy uh, at that time. And that philosophy very much shaped the nation's education policy. And so a couple of the stats that Luke's, Luke points out, 
is is crazy. The reason why they basically started implementing all these tests is because the opposite was happening. We were just promoting people. And so those learning gaps were exacerbated. Um, I mean, it's bad now in these progressive cities, but it was bad everywhere because we weren't testing and we just passed people and we didn't care whether or not people learned or not. And so ironically, the pushback when they implemented, it's like, oh my gosh, you're keeping these kids back. I'm like, yeah, but well, what's the alternative? Like it's, it sucks to be retained as a third grader. It would suck more if you were a 23 year older who couldn't read. Right, right. And so like at some point you have to have some hard measures yeah, to make sure. Yeah, it's accountability. Yeah, it was, it's accountability for the students, but it's also accountability for the teachers. And that's right. one of the reasons why the teachers hated it. It's yep. one of the reasons why the teachers unions ran a candidate against Jeb Bush in 2002, uh, specifically for that. And I just think it's, and the other thing that is wild, and I know it's kind of, Look, I have friends that are teachers. I love teachers. I think you, we all yeah, had. Absolutely. My wife's a teacher. Great teachers. Absolutely. Yeah. My wife is a, a teacher or well, professor, but uh, same thing. So we like teachers. But the thing that motivated so much of the education policy was they looked at the data. Once they started testing everybody, the data told a really interesting story. They told that the teacher's performance, right, as based on the test. There's lots of other disqualifying factors and there's all kinds of things. But if you just measure performance of uh, teachers based on how their students do on tests relative to the year before and relative to the year before. One of the things they found is that teachers' performance increases, which makes sense as, as a new teacher. It increases up till, and this is on average, right? There's obviously specific mm -hmm. uh, examples that, that don't prove that. But on average, teachers' performance increases for like the first seven years. So the teachers are getting better. And then for the next like 10, it sort of plateaus. But then what happens again on average is that teachers' performance starts to decline. Oh, interesting. Right? And, but here's why they started to take these measures. The teacher's performance declines even though their pay increases. Mm -hmm. And so what they really tried to attack was the growing divide between that we're paying the most money to the group that's performing the worst. And so they tried to alter that and change it. Um, and that's where they got all this pushback and they continue to get a lot of pushback. So I, I just think Luke exposing the underbelly of the things that seem to make sense actually do the most harm yeah. is consistent with, unfortunately, what the data shows in any level of analysis of education. Yeah. A uh, breaking news today, by the way, Eric Eggers policy wonk. <laughs> that was that was no, that was very, very insightful. And I think to Luke's point and to your point, uh, they're not it's not just great inflation. It's it's manipulation. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what's so disconcerting is you try to create measures, objective measures like testing. But now they're figuring out ways to game the testing as well. It just shows you how insidious it is and how much they want to avoid accountability. But to me, if I was, I mean, it's easy to get caught up in the, hey, uh, it's, you know, I don't, I'm not comfortable. I feel offended or I feel attacked or assaulted because my minority child goes to a school with a, that's named after a Confederate soldier or named after right. somebody that was, that's it, why they're not it, doing well in math. Right. Yeah. To me, it's more offensive that 62% more white kids can do math on grade level than black kids in Washington, D.C. Yeah, like that, that's offensive. Yeah. And I think that to me would be the big takeaway is that we need to re remember like what actually matters. Right. Right. Yeah. Like, hey, let's be culturally sensitive. But you know what's really more culturally sensitive to make sure people are equipped and empowered to be good and functional and wealthy adults. And if you don't have a basic tool, tool set of education, then that's not going to happen. Yeah, there was a, a late Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, mm -hmm. Democrat of New York, who talked about the bigotry of low expectations. The idea that you got this 62% gap in Washington, D.C. Well, you know, 
we're just going to ignore that. We're not going to expect um, some level of accountability that will equalize that. We're just going to rename the schools. That's that's what we're really going to do. That so. makes me smile because at the Florida Department of Education, we had the phrase, we've created a culture of aspiration. Like, no, no, there you like go. we're not accomplishing anything, <laughs> but man, we're trying. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a fascinating book. We commend everybody to pick up a copy of it, Race to the Bottom by Luke Rosiak.